0: If you have a Bible with you, open it to John chapter 4. Last week I called Pastor Doug on, on Thursday or Friday, and I said, I'm not, I'm not feeling very well. You know, pray for the sermon. I think I'm going to preach uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 27 again. And he said, why don't you take this one off? We'll sit you down. Uh, we don't need to hear a third sermon. Pastor, and uh, and I'll just preach from Acts thirteen, and you can get your stuff together, and maybe next week you can come back. So hopefully, my stuff. He didn't he didn't actually say that. I know some of you guys take me literally. He didn't actually say that, but nevertheless, uh, it was it was in his voice. I could hear it. So. Um, we're, we're going to be moving on to chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. So if you have a Bible, uh, please open it there. If you don't have a Bible, you can borrow one of those black ESV Bibles in the seats in front of you, and you can find John 4 on the passage that we'll be talking about this morning on page 889. It has been uh, a happy uh, coincidence, uh, if you want to look at it that way, that, that Doug got to preach last week um, It allows for us to organize all of December uh, in a providential way around missions. And we really do desire uh, for us to be focused on missions at this time. We want to be, as the title of my sermon is, missions-minded in all that we do, to have a focus and a, a perspective on the world that is for the mission of God. It is a great month for us to be focusing on this. After all, we, we talk about the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. He was sent for a purpose and a reason, and that reason was the commanding the, the nations to know him and to trust in him through the gospel and the forgiveness that he has purchased. He was sent for us, and therefore we ourselves are sent out. In John 17, verses 15 through 19, Jesus, in praying for us, says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. We... Follow the commission of Jesus Christ. God the Father has sent Christ into the world. He has sent his Son into the world. And now Jesus, to finish his mission, has sent us into the world. And so we should be missions-minded in all that we do. December is a wonderful month to be putting in front of us missions. As I said, Jesus' advent commands us to be missions-minded. We just finished the book on missions in our community group, which my community group found incredibly helpful and fruitful in our lives. We focus on Lottie Moon during this time as we give to the International Mission Board that we might fund missionaries and in as many countries as we can possibly put them, 3,500 missionaries of Southern Baptists are out in the world preaching the good news to people who don't know, focusing on those people groups that have not had access to the gospel. We have talked during Sunday school to several missionaries on the field. We are preparing to send out the Brewbakers to the mission field, to China. We are preaching sermons on missions. We are trying to get it across to ourselves and to you. We need to be missions-minded in all that we do. But I don't think that I'm alone in thinking we are probably not where we need to be, either corporately or individually. Corporately, we are not as focused on the mission of God as we need to be in doing evangelism. And individually, you could answer this yourselves, but I would guess that if you're being honest, most of you would think that you are not probably where you need to be in having a mind that is focused on the mission that God has sent you for. Our lives are structured in calendars and in financial statements and in our priorities, usually and typically not on God's mission to save the world, but on school events, on vacations, on jobs, and on retirement, on worldly things that distract us from God's missions. So what do we need to be more missions-minded? That is what we're going to talk about today. So let us go to the Word of God, and let us find out how we can focus ourselves and Crossway as a whole church to be more missions-minded. Begin reading with me in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said... Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days, and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. How are we to become more missions-minded first? We are to understand Jesus' mission. Understand Jesus' mission. The disciples had gone away to get food, leaving Jesus alone at the well. When they come back, he is finishing up his conversation with this Sumerian woman. Now, John doesn't actually say this. He says that they're thinking it, or he says that they're, they're not saying this, but I think the implication is that they're thinking, why is he talking to this woman? Why is he conversing with her? What does she want, and why are you talking with her? And you have to remember, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They, they were looked down upon with dislike, disdain, or possibly even hatred by the Jews. But this woman had a number of strikes going against her. Not only was she Samaritan, but she was also a woman. What's worse, she was a woman of well, questionable moral character. So the question of why are you talking to her is, is poignant. It's, it focuses on her unworthiness to even have a conversation. When they came back, no doubt, Jesus sitting there without a water jar, her with a water jar, the normal thought would be that he is simply asking her for water, which is what she thought that he was going to do, and certainly it's probably what the disciples thought they were going to do. Notice that they don't even think that she is worthy of asking to serve Jesus. Thank goodness they missed the entire conversation. Because Jesus doesn't ask her for anything, and instead he offers her everything. He's not being served by her, but he himself is desiring to serve her. He's not offering her just water, but living water, eternal life, the blessings of the Jews poured out upon their enemies and those who are clearly and totally unworthy. By all accounts, from a Jewish man and a rabbi at that, as the disciples themselves confess in verse 31, this woman should have been unworthy of time, consideration, civility, kindness, decency, words. She was unworthy of these And in doing so, and in thinking so, the disciples completely and totally misunderstand the nature of the mission that Jesus is on. Why did Jesus come into the world? He did not come to help those who can help themselves. He did not come to help people who think that they've got it pretty much all put together and they just need sort of a kick in the right direction. They've got enough fortitude to get the job done, but they just kind of need a push and a start. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous but he came to serve those who are unrighteous and therefore unworthy. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First Timothy 1.15, something we've talked about in the past, we will talk about it as we move forward. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He has come to save those who are unrighteous. And friend, as long as, As you think of the people in the world as being unworthy of the gospel only, as long as you think of them as only enemies of the gospel, you will never have in mind the mission of God going out into the world. People are indeed enemies of God, and they are indeed enemies of the word of God. Listen, drug lords, sex traffickers, despots, uncaring and unloving parents, selfish capitalists those who simply want to drum up controversy for the sake of controversy, thieves, ungrateful and arrogant people, these are all enemies of God's peace, comfort, and order. Yet, we send out missionaries. We send out missionaries to the Middle East where people gnash their teeth, crack their knuckles, and point their guns at the hearts of anyone Who would dare say that Muhammad wasn't really a prophet and that Jesus Christ is the God incarnate, true God of true God incarnate in flesh? Are they enemies of the gospel? Yeah. Are they unworthy of the gospel? Yeah, they are unworthy. Still, we send out missionaries to China who continually, as a government, oppresses the proclamation of the gospel in churches just this past week. Hundreds of Christians were thrown into prison because those Chinese Christians dare, dare to meet in open and in public. The atheism that runs through China denies the lordship of God and denies the clear and evident proof that he exists and that he is the ruler of all of the world. Are they enemies of the gospel? Yes. Are they unworthy of the gospel? Yes. Still, we send out missionaries to Europe. Europe has abandoned, for prosperity's sake, the very hand that has given them prosperity. They have abandoned Christianity, which is the one thing that allowed their society to flourish in the first point. Seeking only their own interests, working solely for their own ends and through their own means, They devote themselves wholly to the things of the world and commit rampant idolatry and say that God is no God and they certainly have left Jesus Christ behind. Are they enemies of the gospel? They certainly are. Are they unworthy of the gospel? Yes. Yes. Your neighbors are no different. Your neighbors are practicing what could best be called a quiet self-idolatry, seeking only what is good for them and seeking only their own desires. They want The things of the world propped up against them, they are seeking more money, they are seeking more toys, they are seeking more of everything, and they care not a lick about the things of God. Are they enemies of the gospel? They are. Are they unworthy? Yes. Friends, you are not any different. You yourself have been involved in idolatry this week, no doubt. You yourselves have been pulled aside from the gospel by the things and the shiny bits of the world. You yourselves have been pulled apart by selfish interests in doing what is best for you and not what is best for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you enemies of the gospel? Probably not. Are you worthy of the gospel? Probably not. See, being unworthy of the gospel it doesn't disqualify people from the gospel. The gospel isn't for people who are worthy. The gospel is for people who need the gospel. That means they're unworthy. That means that the gospel goes out to people who are unworthy. That means that we send people out to meet the enemies of the gospel. We send them out armed with the word of God. We don't send them out armed with swords. We don't send them out armed with guns. We don't send them out with anything but the Holy Spirit, a couple of pieces of clothing, and a Bible. And we do that because they are our enemies. Yes, they stand against God. Yes, but the Word of God can convict them because we understand Christ's mission. Why is it that we train our children, and we should train our children to go serve those people where they can be harassed, they can be imprisoned, and they can be killed? Why do we do that? Why ought we do that? Because we understand that God's mission is not for people who are friendly to us. God's mission is for people who are alien and hostile to the things of God. We don't go and send and pray about these things because we're worthy. And we don't go and send and pray about these things because the people out there are worthy. We go and we send and we pray because Christ is worthy. To understand the mission of God is to understand that it is to display the glory of God for all people. And that includes women of dubious character who seem to be enemies of the people of Israel. This means Muslim men who would rather kill you than hear you speak the name of Jesus Christ. It means people in China who would rather arrest you and throw you in a pit than to see you uphold the Chinese people as Christian. It means that all the enemies of God, all of them, are unworthy of the gospel. But Christ is worthy of their adoration and their joy. So we preach and we send. So first we must understand Jesus' mission. Second, we must understand Jesus' provision. Verses 31 through 34. The disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The response is that same sort of response that Jesus often gets in the book of John where he is talking at one level and they understand him at a different level. I have food to eat that you don't know about. Does he have like a secret pocket of Snickers in there somewhere? Like what? who gave him food, right? Secret Snickers pockets are awesome. You should have one of those. But I doubt that Jesus had one. He's, he's clearly not talking on the same level as them. He doesn't mean Also, that he never has to eat food. He doesn't mean that as a human being, Jesus can merrily, merrily go along his way. As long as he's doing the will of God, God will sustain him and he doesn't need to eat food. That's not what he's getting at here. Otherwise, the temptation in Matthew chapter 4 is actually quite meaningless. He could just keep going on forever and never really be tempted by food. No, he is tempted by food. He is truly hungry. But what he means is that there is a satisfaction, there is a refreshment coming in doing the will of the one who sent him. Jesus has been commissioned out to accomplish a task. He's been given a purpose for coming to the world. And Apparently, somehow, within the context of talking to the Samaritan woman, unbeknownst to the disciples, Jesus Christ is carrying out the very purpose for which God has sent him. And He says this is nourishing to him. It is refreshing to him. It is good for him. He is not saying that we only need spiritual food, but he is saying that we do indeed need spiritual food. He is clearly refreshed by what's going on here and this is clearly a reference back to Deuteronomy 8.3. You remember it well from the very passage we talked about where Satan comes and tempts Jesus Christ by having him turn stones into bread. Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He says, hey, there's some stones here. You could make them into delicious bread and you could gobble that up and Jesus says, no, man does not live by bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that passage well. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8 and read the entirety of the passage and see how it fits so perfectly well with what John is trying to say here in John chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the question becomes, on this w- w- desert wandering that they've been going on, how has God humbled the people? H- how has he humbled them? How has he tested them to see if they would follow him or not? Verse 3, the main verse that we're speaking of. And he humbled you and let you hunger. He said, he, he took you to a place where there was no water and he took you to a place where there was no food. And he led you out there. You could not make it for yourselves. You could not conjure it up. You couldn't go to the rock and strike it twice and get water to flow out of it. You couldn't drum up bread from nowhere. You were humbled because you had to rely on God. Notice exactly what he says after this. He says, he humbled you and let you hunger and immediately, he says, and fed you with manna. God took away everything that you could possibly get from the world, but he fed you with this miracle bread that showed up on the ground. And then he goes on to say, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In in other words, it was a brand new miracle. You hadn't thought that I could do this. You didn't know that I could do this. I kept food from you so that you couldn't eat, so that you would have to rely upon me. And then I made miracle food show up, which you didn't even think could happen. But I did it to prove a point to you. A point is nothing less than this. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You'll notice God did give them bread. He gave them actual food, but he withheld food from them first. He withheld food so that they could be nourished by God. The purpose of this is so that they will know that good things come from God's hand. God has given them manna while they were hungry to fulfill them, to sustain them, to nourish them, to satisfy them, to satiate them. The whole idea of the passage is, you should follow my commands. So why is it that people don't follow the commands of God? Why is it that people don't do the very things that God has commanded for them to do? Well, there's a couple of different answers. You can say, well, they've got wicked hearts and they just want to do evil. Yeah, 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 but even, even then, why do they do evil? They do evil things because they think that those evil things will make them happy. They think that they will satisfy them. They think that they will give them good things. People steal because they think stealing is fun and stealing gives me the things that I want without having to work for them. Uh, people slander because they, they like cutting other people down. There, there's love and joy built into everything we do. and includes breaking the commands of God. So what is God teaching his people? I will fulfill your needs. It seems like you're going to hunger in the wilderness. It seems like you're going to be bereft when you follow my commandments. I'm telling you that you can't do a number of things that you like to do. I'm cutting out pork, people, but you will be satisfied. I will give you good things, just like I gave you manna. You can trust me. You live not just on the things that you put into your mouth, but you live only because I provide them for you. So trust me. The whole point of this is that God will allow things to be removed from you so that he might provide better things to you. You don't live on bread alone, but you live on what God commands you to do because those things are indeed better for you. God has commanded us to go out to preach the gospel, to proclaim it to the nations, to give for the work, to pray, send, and go, as our faithful pastor said last week. So why don't we? Why don't you? Why don't we evangelize? Why don't we tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ? Why is it that we are so hesitant to do this why is it that we don't have more people standing up and saying i I feel like i could give my life to the mission field why is it that we don't have people doing this is it because we're afraid of losing friends if we're losing station and and how people view us in our places of work or in our family is it because we're afraid of giving up money we don't support missions better because we are afraid of giving money because we're not afraid we're afraid we're not going to have enough for ourselves is it because you're afraid of losing your job why don't we do God's will? It's because we are worried that in doing God's will, we will suffer lack. We will lack something. We will lack standing. We will lack friends. We will lack loved ones. We will lack what? You fill in the blank. What, what, what will you lack? What will you lose, friend, that God cannot provide back and more. What joy, what joy can be taken away from you that a God of infinite joy could not give back more of? What thing can be removed from you that God, who with a word created everything and holds it up by the power of that word, could not speak back into existence for you? What fellowship could be sweeter than the fellowship with God Almighty in whom there is no pain and suffering and only good things flow from? What exactly does the world have to offer you that keeps you from doing the very things that God has commanded for you to do? Understand God's provision. God will provide for you. And so you are able to go out and you are able to take and to lose the things of the world in order to gain something that is better, to do the will of God and be nourished and sustained by that the same way that Jesus Christ is. And if you understand God's provision, you will be missions-minded. You will have in your mind a desire and a longing to do the very will of God. Just as Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That is exactly what he commissions us to do, to do the will of him who sent him to send us, Jesus Christ, and to finish the work that he began on the earth. Recently we're talking about some old hymns and I thought of an old hymn that I really, really love by um, a man named Henry Light. That's L-Y-T-E because he's a really old English guy and they don't know how to spell anything back in the day. It was a wonderful time when letters were what they sounded like and words looked weird. So Henry Light was the man's name. He was an orphan and he wrote a song Um, A hymn called Jesus, My Cross, I've Taken. These are the second and the fourth verses of that song. Light writes, Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like man untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate And friends disown me. Show thy face, and all is bright. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl, and clouds may gather. All must work for good for me. What can he take? What can the world, what can Satan, what can anyone take from you that God will not make up for more? Understand God's provision, and you can be missions-minded in the world. Thirdly, understand Jesus' vision. Understand Jesus' vision. We all depend on God for our daily bread. We have to pray about that, that He gives us everything that we need. Farmers have this built into who they are so much more than any of us. They require every day for God to be kind to them. I cannot imagine what life is like for a farmer. You do all of the work that you can possibly do and then you have to sit back and say, Father, I would like it to be warmer so the crops don't freeze but not so warm that they scorch. And I would like some rain but I don't want too much rain and too much rain will flood them out but not enough rain will have drought. And every single day is a day where you are simply waiting on God to build that crop. It must be, sounds bad because we're supposed to live by faith. It must be horrible, honestly. Now all of us live like that. I could lose my voice tomorrow, and a preacher who is without voice is not worth very much. And you could lose a hand tomorrow, and maybe you can't do your job without a hand. It doesn't matter. There's any of a number of things that can be taken away from you. We all live on God's provision day by day by day, but farmers realize this may, maybe much more than the rest of us. And Jesus picks up this, this intonation of farmers and, and the need that they have, and he says, listen, don't you say... There are yet four months to the harvest. Now, what he means by that is this isn't a proverb that Jews went around saying, hey, four months to harvest, as though that meant something. It's likely that he says, isn't this what you would normally say right now? Look around you, and you would normally say, hey, there's four months to the harvest. Ironically, the spring harvest, which is going to happen, would happen about four months from December. So Jesus is likely saying this in the same time, 2,000 years ago, that we're talking about it now when the spring harvest would finally come and they would be able to go out and reap it. He says, this is typically what you say. See, the physical harvest isn't ready. The crops would have barely been springing from the ground. But the real, true harvest is ready. And what he's saying here by saying, don't you say that it's in four months that the harvest is ready, but I'm telling you the harvest is now. He's saying, friends, don't, wait for the harvest to come. The harvest isn't going to be better in five years and in ten years. The harvest isn't better somewhere in the future. The harvest is not down the road somewhere. The harvest is here and today and always in front of you. If we were to quote the book of Hebrews out of context, quoting the book of Psalms, again, we quoting it out of context, today, as long as it says today, as long as it says now and here, this is the harvest. This is the harvest. The wonderful thing about harvest is that they're cyclical. You've got another one coming, but you've just passed one. Friends, the time for the harvest is not in the past. The time for the harvest is not in the future. The time for the harvest is now. So let us be urgent about it. Farmers rely on God to get them to the harvest. They have to rely on God to get them to the harvest. Once that harvest is there, they don't sit around and say, well, I'll get around to it when I can. Once the harvest is there, they are busy working for the harvest. They don't say, well, the corn's ready, but we'll wait and see how it is in October. They go out and they reap the crop. Jesus is saying, now is the time to reap. Now is the time to bring in the crop because the harvest is ready. Farmers work to sharpen their sickles. They prepare the the laborer, and they prepare the threshing floor for the incoming wheat. They are readying themselves for the harvest so that when the harvest is there, it's ready. And perhaps you're not ready for the harvest. Perhaps you are not settled for it. That's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. The brewbakers are going to China. I guarantee you, they know better than anyone. They ain't ready for it. They're not, right? They probably speak a little bit of Chinese, right? A couple of words here or there. They, they, they couldn't, You know, ask someone where McDonald's was. So I know that they want that. So they're going to have to figure that kind of stuff out. Are they ready for what they're going over there for? No. But they are preparing for it. They are readying themselves for it. What are they going to do? They're going to sharpen their sickles, they're going to prepare the laborers, and they're going to prepare the threshing floor. They go out and they learn the language. So that they can find out where McDonald's is and where they can find out how to speak and share the gospel with people. They go out and soften their hearts for the Chinese people. They go out to learn the culture so that they can better evangelize those people. They go out and meet with Christians. They meet with missionaries. They meet with church planters so that they can better understand how we as a church can serve over there. They are doing all this because they desire to know the nations. They don't want to keep putting it off. Because the nations are ready for harvest now and we must be busy with harvesting now and so we must be preparing now. As we read in our missions book just a couple weeks ago, the work of missions is urgent but it is not frantic. It's not, we're not running around uh, anxiously trying to get things together. No, but it's urgent. We faithfully move forward in everything that we do. Jesus' vision is is that the harvest is ready now. Let us be on work now for the harvest. If we're going to have a mind for missions, you must understand the urgency of the call for missions. Understand his vision, Jesus' vision. The time is now for the harvest. Let us work for the harvest then. And fourth, we must understand Jesus' compensation. His vision and then his compensation. God is already providing. Here we see that there are literal wages that are being paid. And this is probably a picture in verse 36 of wages being paid for those workers. But the wages are the same for us. God rewards those who believe that he exists. This is part of what it means to have faith, according to the book of Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So seek to do his will and God is gracious and blesses you. He rewards you for that. The purpose here is so that all might rejoice. The disciples are about to reap what they didn't sow. Two people have sown here. And they are coming, we hear. They went out of the town and were coming to him. In verse 30, all these Samaritans were coming out to the disciples. And Jesus is looking at them coming and he says, you're about to reap, but you didn't sow for it. Jesus sowed for it with the woman. The woman sowed for it by going into the town, but they're about to reap from that. Friend, you you need to understand You you are likely, if you do this well, if you are missions-minded in what you are in your life, of how you organize your life, if you think through how to better evangelize people, you seek honestly to evangelize people, there is very little doubt in my mind that you will not know the fullness of your impact. You just won't. Because you will be reaping in a place where you do not sow. Somebody else will sow it, but you will be reaping There's other times when you are the one who's going to be sowing. You are the one who's going to be evangelizing. You are the one who is going to be sharing the word of God. You are the one who's going to be praying. And you won't know the impact of those prayers. You won't know the impact of your preaching the gospel. You won't see it because somebody else is going to be reaping it. But nevertheless, it will be there for you. You can think of people in your own lives who have aided your faith who have encouraged you, who brought you to faith? How many people preached the gospel to you before it clicked? Many of you can think of faithful people in your lives who you know were incredibly helpful and encouraging to you that you know they don't know that. The impact that you have in someone's life is very incalculable. So we keep sowing the word because we believe that Jesus will indeed compensate us. We believe that the reward is there for us, whether we sow or whether we reap. As Doug said last week, I will reiterate this week, we don't care about building Crossway. We, we just don't care about it. The elders don't care about it. You ought not care about it. We don't care about it other than having our members grow up in faith in the Lord and mature in the Lord. That we care about. If that in- includes increasing the number of people who are here, fantastic. Praise be to God if it means that you are simply sowing and other places everyone else is reaping from our sowing, so be it. Praise be to God. We are not building crossway. We are building the kingdom of God. So because of that, we understand that we have faith in Jesus' compensation. We have faith that he will reward us for what we have done. We're not terribly concerned that we are going to get what we want here and now, but we trust in God to give us what is good and right in the day of judgment. Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. You can't plant the crop fast enough. You plant it, somebody's coming right behind you to reap it. That is what Jesus is talking about. Sow the word of God. Let God's word well up in people and let the word of God be reaped in the lives of people. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come from down from the heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for the thing which I sent it. God's word will be active. God's word will accomplish all that he desires for it to do. Sow, so, so, Sow so the gospel. Water liberally with God's word and someone will reap the harvest, even if it's not you. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 gives us a warning about the type of attitude where we want to know that we are being rewarded for what has happened. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. How difficult is it for human beings to understand that? You don't need to be rewarded by everyone else for what you did. You don't need to talk about how your church is growing. You don't need to talk about the good thing that you did so that you can get a couple of dozen likes on Facebook. That is irrelevant. And as a matter of fact, that's selling your good deed cheap. God will reward you. It doesn't matter if you are sowing the seed. It doesn't matter if you reap it or not. You have no idea what's going to happen to that seed after you leave. But you leave it to God and you let others reap where you have sown What does it mean, then, to be missions-minded? It means that we go to unworthy people, showing that we understand the mission of God in the world. It means that we risk losing worldly comforts, showing that we understand God's provision for us in the world. It means that we do this with a great deal of urgency, showing that we understand Jesus' vision for how we are to go about doing it, and that we work with faithfulness, showing that we understand Jesus' compensation. He has not called for us to be people who bring in dozens. He has called for us to be faithful to him. John is a master storyteller, and one of the things that he does brilliantly is split the stories of the women and Jesus talking with the disciples. And we have here a picture of faithfulness, not just in who Jesus is, not just in what Jesus does, but in what this woman does. She herself is a wonderful picture of the type of thing that Jesus wants his disciples to be. Remember, she is likely cut off from her people. Her sin was open and public. And she's at the well at noon by herself because no one else wants to come with her. And yet she doesn't go back and say, Well, I found out a nice juicy tidbit. You guys want to know who the Christ is? Tough. Not going to tell you. Huge jerks to me. Not going to let you know. She doesn't do that. She she goes back and she says, Come, come. Let, let me tell you, there's a man who told me everything I ever did. And immediately they think, whoa, he told her a lot because we know who she is. She's done a lot of stuff. So this man must be really important. She goes back and she has, she has fervency to tell people who wouldn't have talked to her. She understands the mission of God. Even if she can't put it into words, she's modeling it. She, in a beautiful little statement by John, leaves her water jar Small detail. But like Jesus, who needs no food, she now needs no water. She came for water, but she is satisfied in a different way. She doesn't need to drink of that water in order to be refreshed and replenished, in order to be satisfied. She leaves the water jar because she has water that they don't know about. And, And from what Jesus has said, it's a well of water springing up in her for eternal life. She leaves behind worldly things because she has a better mission. Third, there is urgency in what she says. She doesn't come back to saikar and say, hey guys, uh, you know when you get time, I'd like to talk to you about this guy. He might be passing through, I don't know. I didn't even really catch his name, but there's a, maybe no time. Okay, well, you know she says, come. It's the first word out of her mouth. Come, now there's urgency there. Come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Christ? She compels people to listen to her. And she entrusts herself to Jesus. They, they come back and they ask Jesus to hold on two more days. And so he holds on there two more days. And, and they then, hearing him, turn to her, some, some oddity, they turn to her and say, we don't need to hear from you anymore. We don't believe because of you anymore but we have heard from him and so now we believe. What does she care? What what does she care? Forever. She is in scripture. Forever. The depiction of her faithfulness goes out. How many people have been called to the mission field because of this text? How many people have been saved through the use of this text because of her example? made all the better by the fact that she's nameless, but God knows who she is. She will be compensated. Friends, we want to be missions-minded in this church, but we can't get there by fiat. I I can't stand up here and proclaim we are missions-minded. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work for the elders to want us to be missions-minded, for us to pray about being missions-minded, for us to even set things up so that it looks like we're missions-minded. It only works if you yourselves are missions-minded. If you have a heart for lost people in Bay City, in Midland, in Saginaw, in Michigan, in North America, and indeed the world. Only if you have a heart for it, for will this church ever be missions-minded? And we can lead, and we can tug, and we can pull, and we can proclaim all we want to. And it doesn't matter at all. Unless we as an entirety in a church desire to do the mission of God the Father so that every people, tribe, tongue, and nation will know the name of Jesus Christ and know the salvation that has come from him because he has given himself as a ransom for many. He has died for our sins so that we might live to his righteousness because he is worthy to have everyone know who he is. So, let us make disciples. Let us baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us be about the work of our Savior. For this Jesus has commanded us to go, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so he has commanded us, go and do. So let us go and do. Let us know well the mission that he has sent us on. Let us understand the vision of that mission. Let us understand the provision that he will give us along the way, and let us understand that for those of us who engage in this, there is great great reward. Let us be about the mission of our Savior. Let us be missions-minded and give him glory by our lives. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for your word. I am thankful for your grace and your mercy for us this morning. I pray that you will continue to be with us. You will watch over us in all that we say and do. I pray that your spirit will give us hearts that long for your glory, that we might be unafraid of men and women in the world, that we would stand up to proclaim loudly salvation through Jesus Christ, not as though we are fighting against those enemies of the gospel, but as though we are hearkening them and calling them to know the goodness of one who can give them everlasting life, that they might lay down their swords, that they might lay down their anger, that they might lay down their materialism, that they might lay down all of the things that they long for in this world and might seek that which is better. We pray, Father, that we will be compassionate towards them in that. And in doing so, we might give you glory and honor. For there is one name in heaven and on earth and under the earth, to which every knee will bow, Jesus Christ our Lord. May praise and honor and glory be to him forever and ever. Amen.